Welcome to Interchange. Today's show is the choice of separatism and begins to take some kind of measure of the impacts of the so-called novel coronavirus or COVID-19 in our communities. Throughout, we'll be accompanied by love and compassion. Two tracks from John Coltrane's last recordings with McCoy Tyner, Elvin Jones, and Jimmy Garrison. Recorded on September 2nd, 1965, and released in 1977 on the album First Meditations, this has been described by critic and essayist Jeff Dyer as catastrophic Coltrane, following Adorno's reflection that in the history of art, late works are the catastrophe. What we know about the pandemic being called COVID-19, a novel coronavirus, is ever-changing. The number of confirmed cases continues to rise. Certain areas have been hard hit, from the so-called epicenter of Wuhan, China, to the Lombardy region in northern Italy. One primary concern is simply how people get good information so they can plan their lives accordingly. To date, we've been asked to wash our hands incessantly, or as one of our guests has written, ferociously. And most importantly, apparently, we're supposed to practice social distancing. But what if that's not possible? And further, what if that only bolsters the destructive individualism that has brought us to our current catastrophes? But we move finally to how to help and how to remember there are many ways to feel the pain of a catastrophe, to the fact that pandemics grow and are fostered from within our systems of living, telling us that this way of organizing our living has got to stop. To begin today, Mia Beach shares two conversations with guests Cass Botts and Forrest Gilmore. Cass Botts is the executive director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, an organization focused on harm reduction and social justice in the Bloomington community. And Forrest Gilmore is the executive director of the Shalom Community Center in Bloomington, an organization that supports people suffering poverty and houselessness. And we'll end with philosopher Frederick Nara who discusses the ways we are manipulated by certain ideas of separation. Nera specifically looks at the French context, but goes on to discuss the ways that we must reject the kinds of separations offered via our built environments and our governments, and perhaps find ways to separate from them. And now, the choice of separatism on Interchange on WFHB. I'm Mia Beach, and I am here um, via Skype with Cass Botts, who's the executive director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance. We wanted to talk about the coronavirus. Um, And first off, Cass, can you explain a little bit about the Indiana Recovery Alliance and your role? I'm the executive director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, which is a harm reduction organization based here out of uh, Monroe County in Bloomington, Indiana. And what harm reduction is, is essentially a set of both practical strategies and you know, movement building endeavors that are aimed at reducing the negative consequences that might be associated with drug use. And so those could be physical harms like transmission of HIV or hepatitis C or um, people being at risk of sepsis or other kinds of infections. But then also there are like social injustices involved and we look at harm reduction holistically and that's a lot of the services that our organization offers. But what we're most known for here in Monroe County is that we administer the syringe services program on behalf of the Monroe County Health Department. And I know that the landscape of the coronavirus and how it's affecting our community is constantly changing right now. Um, And so it's hard to say exactly how this is going to affect your organization. But in terms of the communities that you serve, 
how is this impacting your services and what kind of measures are you taking right now for this, what I would say, uh, more vulnerable population? Since we're doing a public health service, we're trying to remain open business as usual. We're staying open seven days a week because people need access to these life-saving supplies seven days a week. But we have imposed like some social distancing measures such as door and window only service. We are informing people, um, handing out pamphlets, telling them about their own risk and ways that they can do harm reduction in terms of the coronavirus in relation to the drug use or just the way they go about their day-to-day lives. So, so far, not a lot has changed, but I think what we're more afraid of is what might be yet to come. I'm kind of curious about how isolation can make the situation worse for individuals um, who might be emotionally or physically vulnerable to more than just uh, coronavirus. Yeah, a couple of things I'm concerned about with isolation and self-quarantine. First of all, we always tell everyone never use alone because when you use alone, you're at risk of overdose and not having anyone around to find you and to administer naloxone. So overdose rates um, could be kind of at a higher risk here. And then also we're concerned about people having to go through like involuntary withdrawal. Um, if someone's like drug seller, drug supply is affected here, that might make them, you know, lose access to what's helping them stay well. So we're concerned about that. And particularly for houseless folks and folks who aren't going to have a physical space in which they can't even self-quarantine in the first place. Do you have a lot of the houseless community that also accesses your services? And are you seeing a change in how that's impacting those folks who don't necessarily have a house in which to quarantine themselves? For instance, people who might stay at a shelter. Yeah, so we do mobile outreach days on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And Mondays and Fridays, we're doing those at Shalom Community Center, which is a day center, uh, primarily for people experiencing extreme poverty and houselessness. And so far, in terms of our services, we've tried to tell people, you know, uh, take more than what you think you might need, just in case you have limited access to these services, you know, trying to prepare for, um, like, if a lockdown were to happen. But the thing is, if someone is houseless, they're not really able to carry as much as what they may need for two weeks on their person. Um, So it's putting them in a state of, you know, really relying on us being able to continue to be open. And then in terms of like a a self-quarantine, I think, you know, there are people working on finding a space to be able to offer that. Um, But so far, there isn't anywhere that someone can go. And so I think that the spread of this, if someone in that population were affected, would probably be pretty rapid due to not having that kind of space to self-isolate in the first place. And do you know, like, what what the course of awareness or community response to COVID has been? Like, what awareness of the dangers exist among those uh, that you serve, among the people who are in a more vulnerable state? Um, and do you know what kind of precautions people are taking and, like, what organizations might be stepping up in order to help? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say with like the population that is most affected by the things that my services are there to help with. So we're talking about it a lot and people, um, and this is just anecdotally, people are kind of saying, oh, like I don't really, people are freaking out. Like I don't really understand like what's going on. So it sounds like there might be a lack of access to good information. And, you know, the IRA and Shalom and the health department are trying to do good work, you know, putting that information out there and informing people just like at the, at the point of outreach. 
I'm really excited about some of the things I've seen people doing to step up in the community, but it requires kind of being plugged in to technology in a certain way, certain Facebook groups that people might not know about or have access to. And so I think that getting the information out there and um, in a way where everyone has access to the same kinds of information might kind of be a struggle right now. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment, Mia Beach talks with Cass Botts, executive director of the Indiana Recovery Alliance, a grassroots organization focusing on harm reduction and social justice, about how COVID-19 has affected Bloomington's vulnerable populations, especially as regards social distancing and isolation. Do you have any other thoughts on how the Indiana Recovery Alliance or some of the organizations that you guys work with um, how you guys are going to deal with this if there is, in fact, um, a step up in terms of security or how how um, other people in the community might be able to help? Some of the things that I'm concerned about are we've got a lot of people who are on medication-assisted treatment um, like methadone and suboxone, and I have been concerned about those people getting access to their medication. I've been concerned about the fact that um, some people I know who are immunocompromised themselves actually still have to go into their clinic every single morning to get their medication that keeps them well, uh, especially methadone. And they're not yet um, able to take home their medication for like a two weeks worth supply, which is really problematic, especially for those people who are really in that high risk population, which is honestly most of them. And I think, you know, I've had organizations like Clean Slate, which is a MAT provider, reach out and say, hey, let's talk. So there might be more info to come. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really concerned about people who are at risk of involuntary withdrawal with no social supports. I'm concerned about people at risk of overdose from isolation. Um, I'm even uh, concerned about people like people who are more alcohol dependent, having like limited access to that if there were a lockdown and then having to go through DTs, which can be deadly. So there are a lot of things around um, substance use that I think are pretty concerning. And even there's an economic impact that I'm worried about. So a lot of folks who our injection drug users have received felonies um, for possession of syringes, paraphernalia. And if they have a job that they now lose, um, it could be harder for them to get a job moving forward. So lots of things at play. I think that if community members can just um, think creatively around the types of problems I'm describing, a lot of the help we could need is maybe stuff that will require, um, how do I say, like really creative solutions because they're not going to come um, from these like state sanctioned services probably. For the people in the audience who don't quite understand some of the lingo, can you just explain a little bit more DTs and what that is? Yeah, DTs is delirium tremens. And so someone who's heavily um, alcohol dependent can actually experience severe withdrawal that is um, that can be deadly. And so I'm just thinking of things like if we were on lockdown and people were able to have the groceries delivered, but like not be able to have access to alcohol and they were put in that situation, what's the healthcare service going to be like if the healthcare system is overwhelmed with coronavirus cases, for example? Um, I just, I'm, I'm interested in how this is going to affect people's ability to stay well. 
Does the Indiana Recovery Alliance have any requests from the community um, beyond thinking creatively, which I think is great advice, you know, other things that people might be able to do um, in this moment where we are kind of in this interim period, like we haven't quite been fully quarantined. Um, there's still a little bit more access to movement, uh, but uh, a lot of people are feeling like, it, you know, it might come. And what are the things we might be able to do to be supportive of those um, with less privilege and with less access uh, preemptively? Yeah, I mean, in terms of mutual aid, I think just like what I try to do is make sure that my immediate community um, is aware that I'm able to help them with any needs that they might have. The IRA will take donations of things like um, hand sanitizer or disinfectant or things that we might be able to hand out to people, especially people who um, are experiencing houselessness and may need access to ways to you know stay sanitized. Um, but for the most part, I mean, it's things that are kind of difficult asks. Um, I am in need of volunteers. We're definitely in need of cash donations. Um, and other than that, I think uh, a lot of stuff will kind of have to uh, feel it out and see what needs arise in terms of helping people who are going through like physical hardships, such as withdrawals, especially if we do get like a quarantine space. I think that will need to be staffed with like uh, loving and compassionate volunteers. And speaking of volunteers, um, your organization is primarily staffed by volunteers, correct? Oh yeah, we are volunteer run. So I've actually um, lost, you know, maybe like six volunteers in the past two weeks due to various reasons. And the only way that we're able to stay open is to be able to have, um, you know, a consistent volunteer base. Uh, so that's definitely something that is really necessary to keep our doors open and continue to be able to give people access to the life-saving supplies that they need. I know that generally, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, you prioritize volunteers um, who have a history of drug use or addiction. Is that correct? Yeah, we do tend to prioritize that. Um, people with lived experience with injection drug use or just addiction, chaotic drug use, period. But at this point, you know, anyone who has a non-judgmental, loving attitude of respect and dignity toward our participants is absolutely welcome to apply. We've got um, a space on our website with an application for that. What is that website? It is indianarecoveryalliance.org and then forward slash volunteer for that application. Any other thoughts? We could, uh, we could round it out with. Yeah. The only other thought that I had that I didn't mention is just thinking about people who are incarcerated at this time and how they might be affected. Um, you know, I think 70% of local jails, um, people in local jails have not been convicted. So, you know, we've got all of these folks who are in this kind of, um, isolated space where they might be affected really ne negatively by things that are to follow. And so I'm just worried about them. And because of the high percentage of people who use drugs who are criminalized, felonized, um, I think that that's largely a lot of our people in there. And regardless of whether they are people who use drugs or not, I stand you know, in absolute solidarity and I'm thinking about and concerned about incarcerated folks right now. It's time for a break. We'll continue with Coltrane's Love off of First Meditations. Stay with us for more on how vulnerable populations will manage the current pandemic, COVID-19.
Welcome back. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Choice of Separatism and features conversations about how our social systems will deal with increasing numbers of people infected with COVID-19. In this segment, Mia Beach talks with Forrest Gilmore, Executive Director of the Shalom Community Center in Bloomington, Indiana, an organization that supports people suffering extreme poverty and houselessness. speak a little bit to how the coronavirus is impacting your practices at Shalom? Probably the most basic is extra cleaning has been where we started and just kind of really expanding up on our on our cleaning protocols to make sure that we're uh, disinfecting on a more uh, regular basis. That's been the biggest, I think, shift. But the uh, the larger shift is uh, starting to occur now. Because, uh, you know, for, for Many um, organizations, the question often becomes, do we stay open or stay closed? And for us, it's a little bit more complicated uh, because to close would be very devastating for a lot of people. So our question becomes, how do we continue to uh, provide life essential services to people who need us um, up against the fact that we have an illness that could be devastating, um, especially within this population who, ha- who has a lot of, you know, health, um, a lot of health risks. Um, tomorrow, we're uh, shifting our, our uh, protocols where we will um, no longer be open to um, people with homes. We'll just be open to people experiencing homelessness exclusively starting tomorrow. Uh, we will continue to provide uh, a takeout lunch for people who are housed um, from 12 to 1.30. Um, and people who need to access their mail can also to go help people access their mail from 12 to 1.30 here at the center. The services other than that will be normal for people experiencing homelessness, except we're starting to refine some of our work so and target it more on dealing with the, the virus itself and um, and with quarantine procedures like that. So the second uh, key thing is we're going to have a different entry policy um, tomorrow. So we will be using a test to um, to kind of assess where people are health-wise and use that to determine um, whether to quarantine that person or not. Um, on, a, on a kind of a longer-term thing, we're, we're really looking towards um, trying to create a distinct quarantine space for people. And um, that's uh, in process, and that's a big deal. We're hoping to get that going soon, but that's that's there's a lot to do with that. So um, so we're trying to create a shelter because staying home is not something that a person who's homeless can do. So if uh, that becomes a recommendation for someone from the hospital, for example, or from medical professionals, they just can't do that. So we have to um, provide a space where they can um, quarantine in place, so to speak. But um, it can't be the same place as people who aren't uh, infected um, or impacted. So um, so that's what we're trying to work on now. Yeah, that was going to be one of my next questions, obviously, was that people without homes are going to probably have an increased risk of exposure if they're in shelters. Or I was also wondering if you would be able to speak a little bit to how people are accessing um, appropriate information, um, how you're... Um, dealing with the way people without um, some of the access that we do who have homes are learning more about this and learning how to stay safe. Yeah, with all, almost without fail, crises like this, whether it's you know environmental disasters or disease or things like that, they, they almost uh, inevitably um, 
hit people in poverty the worst and the most. And, um, and so, so all the things that make it a little bit easier for the rest of us to accommodate a kind of catastrophe like this is very difficult for people, especially people in extreme poverty who even don't have a home to retreat to. So, uh, so that's really been a lot of the folks, of course, that we have that are, um, experiencing homelessness. A good number of them have, um, physical issues, you know, that may seniors, of course, um, so people over 60 who are higher at risk, but also things like diabetes, heart disease, lung, lung infections, immunosuppressant issues. Um, so all of those things are more likely to be present in a person experiencing homelessness and um, makes them you know, much more at risk. Um, and that's on top of not having a place to self-quarantine. And honestly, just lie down and sleep if you're struggling, especially if you're street homeless, if you're really struggling with that. So um, so that's what we're, we're trying to kind of navigate right now is how do we keep the homeless population, people who are homeless, how do we keep them as safe as possible, provide the services that are essential to people and get the proper care to people who do become infected? Because I, I really think it's, it's not a question of if, but, but when. And so we, we've got to take it from that approach and really respond about when this is going to happen. <laughs> You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show begins taking the measure of COVID-19 in our community. In this segment, Mia Beach talks with Forrest Gilmore, Executive Director of the Shalom Center in Bloomington, Indiana, an organization that supports people suffering extreme poverty and houselessness. The people who volunteer with you must be having issues either um, having shifts or, you know, risking exposure. So I was curious if you could speak to how that's impacting, you know, your organization. Um, we're, we're retooling. We're trying to shift um, staff roles into, into, you know, kind of multiple ways in terms of moving them into um, services that they might not formally do in, in order to uh, do that. We're cross-training um, because people are getting sick. Um, our volunteer numbers, we we absolutely rely on volunteers to function. Um, we have um, probably somewhere in the range of 100 volunteers a week that come in to um, help do what we do, and those numbers are way down. Um, and so right now, and for, for good reason, people need to protect themselves and be, be safe. We do definitely have a lot of people, particularly in vulnerable populations, uh, who are volunteers too. You know, a lot of seniors and um, uh, especially who volunteer, uh, the student body, which is now, you know, with the school closing that and spring break too right now, um, that that's dras- drastically impacts us as well. Those are our two core volunteer bases, um, seniors and the student body. So, so we've lost both of those, those groups. Can you uh, back up and just um, reiterate uh, how large your volunteer base is normally and what it is at right now? I don't have numbers right now because it's so up and down and precarious, but we, we typically have about 150 volunteers in a week and um, we're, you know, I can, it's more than half that we're, we're down on that. I don't have great numbers for you, but we're already um, shifting and shutting down some basic services and limiting some basic services, reducing them for kinds of things in order to uh, keep us functioning. Plus our whole new um, entry policy, which we're going to start working on, uh, start operationalizing. Um, that's going to take extra staff energy. So we're just trying to figure out all of that and how to, again, to, to keep open and keep offering the services. Really important. 
and shelter and food being the most basic, you know, and, and uh, but also trying to deal with the fact that we're going to um, be getting sick people and, and, and how do we do that? And um, do you, can you speak a little bit more to um, how you envision um, supporting people who need to be isolated but still need to access services? Or is this something that you're just still kind of working out as we're all kind of evolving through this crisis? Yeah, everything. Uh, um, I, I keep talking to um, is that um, everything is changing <laughs> and that they should not get attached to any one decision because it may be different the next day. Um, but, uh, so that's, so we're in serious flux right now and, and things are changing, um, by the minute. Uh, so right now we're close to, um, and not just us, but, uh, not just alone, but we're working with New Hope for Families and the United Way and, and, uh, other organizations in our community, as well as the county council to try and, um, open a quarantine space. So, um, we've got a location in mind. It needs, uh, some quick renovation, all of these things. Figure out insurance. We need to figure out the leaseholder. We need to figure out, um, you know, how we're going to pay for it. All these things are in in the process, and um, and then we've got to staff it. And so that's that's what's next. Um, I'm pretty sure we we're close to getting a space. We have to build showers into that space, so that's going to cost some money and time and effort. And then we're um, uh, we've got to staff it and get that staffed up really quickly. That's going to be uh, that's going to be a, a lot of work right in front of us. Um, but that's what we're working towards. Are there ways that people in the community who want to be helpful would be able to help? Yeah, sure. We're working towards getting over-the-counter medications right now, and uh, so flu and cold medications in particular are really valuable. Um, if people could um, donate them, and they can mail them to us at 620 South Walnut Street, 47401 in Bloomington. Uh, we're looking for, we're going to be starting, we're looking for cots and for, and or for mats. Uh, we're looking for towels, for bedding, pillows, blankets, uh, sheets, uh, pillowcases. We're looking for basic hygiene products. Oh gosh, just the daily living stuff, uh, razors and soap and shampoo and deodorant and, um, combs and things, you know, things like that, um, I know there's some things, feminine hygiene products, diapers, size four through six. We're also really struggling to get a hold of basic necessities. Like it's hard just as everybody's having trouble getting um, um, like sanitizing spray and Clorox wipes and things like that. We need those kinds of things, uh, especially because we're going to be actively engaged with people who um, very likely will have the illness. So so we, we that's really important. If So if anybody and, and uh, we're looking for masks like dust masks masks. Um, they don't even have to be N95 masks, but uh, we're looking for those kinds of ma- uh, masks to, uh, as part of our um, quarantine protocol to help prevent and reduce the chance that people will infect other people if we discover that they're ill or may be ill. It's time for another break. This is the second track on John Coltrane's first meditations, Compassion. Stay with us for more on how communities take care of each other in the face of the current pandemic. Philosopher Frederick Nara will be our guest. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange. For the second half of our show, we'll move from the local to the international, to the global nature of the pandemic and the call to keep ourselves separated from ourselves. Our guest is Frederick Nara, author of the recent book, The Unconstructible Earth, who discusses with us the meanings of separatism in a time of human-constructed global pandemics. So my name is uh, Frédéric Nera. I am a French philosopher, and I am also an associate professor um, in the English department of UW Madison. Thanks very much. You have written a uh, a short piece for I think uh, the journal Terrestre, uh, which I, I think um, translates terrestrial. Uh, that happened. Uh, I think he wrote that for March fifth. And it's a piece called Viruses and Separation, Political Virality and Competing Separatisms. Uh, so as we sort of scramble to isolate ourselves, protect others from ourselves as much uh, to protect ourselves from others, you're saying something else here. This piece calls for understanding separatisms, and you identify, I guess, three modes of separatism. Do you mind detailing these? Yes, yeah, so you know, my, my this text was written on the 5th of March, and it seems already like, uh, you know, decades ago, because things evolve very quickly. I think it's very important to compare what is happening nowadays in France, in Germany, in Italy, in the US, and in order also to understand what does not happen. So uh, there is a specific context explaining the reasons for which I decided to write a little text, like four, five, two pages, maybe like five paragraphs. Uh, one month ago, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, decided to, to steal an idea from the far-rightist, the far-rightist uh, groups, far-rightist people. He decided to attack um, the Muslims. He decided to explain that in France, uh, Muslims in general try to sever themselves from uh, the French Republic. And instead of uh, using uh, the signifier, the term uh, communitarism, he decided to coin a new term. He decided to launch a new concept. And he used the idea, the concept of separatism. Basically, the idea was to say, oh, uh, you know, we should not speak about communitarism. That's not the problem. The problem is not to produce a community. The problem is to produce a separation. There are some people in France, that is to say, precisely Muslims, who do not respect uh, the laws of the Republic. And that's a, a huge problem. So he spoke about that. He spoke about that. And... Uh, I noticed the fact that there was something very strange in his use, in his, you know, in, in the fact that he coined this new idea, this new concept of separatism. Because I had suddenly the intuition that it was something like a projection, a projection of his own unconscious. In fact, at first sight, he was speaking about Muslims, but in fact, he was speaking about his own situation because in France, there is really this feeling that our government is completely severed from the population. We have the feeling that uh, Macron is, was able to produce a sort of separation between himself and the people, like deciding to change laws without asking what people 
thing. In France, for now more than year, one year, there was there were many demonstrations. There is there was a yellow vest movement, and there was this uh, reform. There was this attempt to reform the um, healthcare uh, system, uh, and in fact, many people protested against that, refusing this reform, because the reform of the healthcare system will lead to its privatization. But Macron was completely, completely uh, uh, deaf to that. Not only Macron, but his uh, government. It was like, we don't care. We are just going to reform France. We are going to do what Margaret Thatcher did in Great Britain like uh, 30 years ago. Uh, really, Macron is not Kennedy. It's more like Thatcher and Reagan. So separatism for sure, but certainly not at the end, a separatism produced by Muslims, but a separatism produced by, let's say, the elite or more precisely, uh, the president and the government. So that's uh, the first uh, kind of um, reflection that I began to think about. I began to think about, you know, this kind of the ambiguity of the term used by uh, Macron. Mm-hmm. And suddenly happened a second phenomenon, you know, like it was almost simultaneous. It was a sort of, uh, let's say, an irony of the real. This is Interchange on WFHB. As part of taking the measure of COVID-19, or the novel coronavirus, we're talking with philosopher Frederick Nara about separatism. What does it mean to isolate ourselves in the face of illness and pandemic fears? And how can that separatism be used by those in power? But also, how can the governed make use of separatism to undermine that power? What happened while Macron was speaking about separatism, while Macron was denying his own position and projecting his own position on Muslims, COVID-19, the coronavirus, COVID-19, the coronavirus, um, began to spread. It began to spread. And suddenly, we saw uh, the appearance, the the genesis of a new form of separatism. Not uh, the separatism, uh, not Macron's separatism, and for sure, certainly not any sort of separatism produced by Muslims, but a sort of separatism, a sort of biopolitical separatism. That is to say, the demand that any individual should quarantine, should be confined, should be severed from the others. Suddenly, the government was asking for a global form of separatism. So Macron, on the one hand, was saying, well, it's terrible, separatism is terrible, we should be united, we should be, you know, uh, sharing some values, we should be able to produce a strong community. But with the virus, something completely different happened and is still happening nowadays. In fact, a biopolitical form of separatism, the fact to ask any individual to be a pure atom. And we are in this uh, terrible uh, situation right now. Mm, So we have separatisms there that um, kind of come out of the same person, but but offer a a reflection in a different direction, so to speak. Yes, exactly. And so now we have to understand the situation in which we are, that is to say the fact that we are compelled to protect oneself 
But from what exactly? What mm. is the problem exactly? What is this virus? And why is this virus? In fact, why uh, the only possibility that we have to protect ourselves from this danger is to become mere individuals, mm. severed from the rest of the world, only using Amazon to get some food or to get some masks. What is this virus exactly? What is the danger? In fact, this virus is not something coming out of the blue. This virus is the mere expression of globalization. Or if you prefer, this virus is the mere expression of the Anthropocene. This virus reveals not something coming from Mother Nature. This virus reveals what we have done for centuries. You know, one of the reasons for which this virus can spread everywhere It is because precisely everything is interconnected with everything else. Mm. It is because we produce global interconnections, A. And B, if this virus is so dangerous, it is because human beings kept erasing the separations between cities and um, uh, countrysides and, and, and natural uh, spaces. Mm. If nowadays... Because this virus is, will, not, will not be the last one. There will be other viruses like this after this one. There will be other coronaviruses, other forms of that. And it's linked to the fact that there is no biological barriers any longer between uh, different forms of uh, existence. Uh, as you know, the more, in fact, um, we uh, erase uh, the barriers between humans and non-humans, the more we produce the conditions of possibility of the spreading of virus. Uh, the fact that uh, we destroy any sort of natural habitats compel animals to appear in cities. Uh, we can see that everywhere. We can see that in Indonesia, we can see that in California, we can see that in many countries. We destroy the condition of possibility for life and we produce the condition of possibility for the globalization of the virus and for its capacity to affect literally everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, we have um, obviously erased the separatisms that you are t talking about, creating sort of natural uh, uh, blockages to these kinds of spreads, um, at the same time being asked to be separate within this unseparated space. Yes, exactly. You are, you are, it's a perfect synthesis. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have to think about that. We have to think about, like, let's say, bad separations and good separations. The problem is that we have to be intelligent. We have to think. We are in a situation in which we are compelled to rethink what is a relationship, what is a relation, what is a separation, and what does it mean to be severed from something. Maybe it's time for us to really understand the kind of separation we want to produce and the kind of separation we want to uh, erase, we want to uh, overcome, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's really that's the goal of my article, mm -hmm. to produce a possibility to think different forms of separation. Some of them are terrible. Some of them are healthy, if I can say. It is a question of individualism in, in the capitalist world we live in. The separatism is an individualism um, yes, is. and creating 
uh, individual uh, nodes of, of consumption. You mentioned in your article uh, the great refusal. I assume this refers to the sort of in the Marcusean sense, right, of um, a refusal of consumer of the consumer society uh, and l- looking to art to sort of liberate us from that as well. Yeah, it could be Marcusa, it could be Maurice Blanchot and, and Dionys Mascolo in the 1960s when they were producing texts uh, in order to support uh, the Algerian independence war. So, uh, as I said, my article was very short. So, I say, you're right, uh, grand refus, great refusal. It was a kind of, you know, empty signifier, open signifier. And we can imagine many ways to, in fact, uh, 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 um, occupy, in a way, uh, this uh, empty signifier. So, the great refusal is about the refusal of the reasons for which we are now compelled to stay at home. Mm. So uh, we have to think about that. What are the reasons for which we are compelled now to cut uh, our relationships? Why are we compelled to give money to Amazon? (laughs) Right. It's time for a final break. We'll continue with Compassion from John Coltrane. Stay with us for more on viruses and separation when Interchange returns. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is about local and global responses to COVID-19, and we'll continue our conversation with philosopher Frédéric Nara about viruses and separation, and on political virality and competing separatisms. How can we envision collectivity in separation? In the face of um, trying to understand 
people's reactions, you know. So in t- an attempt to think, as you ask, and as as we want to say, within a sort of mode of uh, pandemic response, which is both promoted by every media outlet that I read in terms of, you know, uh, social isolation um, and such to try to understand, you know, not... Uh, isolating to understand what it means to choose the right separatisms to to you know to try to walk into this biological space and understand the virus um, as you say not not the end all of viruses but perhaps the beginning of many kinds of viruses like this uh, and how we have to expect them uh, and not in just a protectionist way right not to just protect ourselves from them per se but to understand the ways we have to learn to live within these these new new world orders I suppose so how you know in in your piece you say um, you ask the questions of the biology or of the virus itself what is so bad what are we protecting ourselves from what is its mortality rate is it such a bad mortality rate um, you know these are questions that they're hard to answer in some sense but uh, because they fluctuate a bit but let's say they're 3.5 um, percent uh, for for me I don't quite know what that means except to say that it's greater than the flu you're totally right as I say that's why I say I wrote this text you know at the beginning of March and so I said it likes it's like in a way decades ago uh, because uh, we are also following uh, the last uh, 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 expertise, the last, the last articles produced by scientists in order to assess the danger of this virus. And so my goal is certainly not to say that the virus is not dangerous. It is dangerous. It's not fake news. And it's not a Chinese thing. It is a global thing. It's not a foreign virus, uh, as the uh, president of the United States said. It is, in fact, a global virus. And so it's really dangerous because of the question of the scale so yes, there will be some people who are going to die. But it's not only that. The problem, as soon as you understand the problem of the scale, you understand that there will be many people infected. Maybe they will not die, but they will go to the hospitals. Which ones? When I say that the virus is a way to reveal the world in which we are living, it means that, for example, in the US, the number of persons who will be affected by the virus will, in fact, test the capacity of the U.S. healthcare system to take care of them. And my fear is that the institutions will not be able to respond to the situation. What I try to say is that the problem is not only what scientists say about the virus, it is what we have to say about the structures of society, of political structures. It is also what we have to say and we have to understand and we have to ask for concerning healthcare, right? So it is very difficult nowadays to assess how many people will die. People will die. I don't know how many. And that's why, of course, we have to take care of that. When I spoke about the necessity to think what could be a good separatism and a bad separatism, I don't mean at all that there is no danger. I try to understand that what will be the next step. We live in a sort of moment of suspension, a kind of state of exception. That is to say, our lives are suspending, are suspended. We have in this very specific moment to think about ourselves and to think about what we have done and what we have not done. I think it might be a perfect moment for the people to understand, for example, why a universal healthcare system is a 
structural necessity, not only a structural necessity concerning our situation, but the future. And I hope, I hope that A, not too many people will die, and B, that it will be the possibility to uh, reclaim a certain number of vital vital structures, uh, if it makes sense. To reclaim, to ask for them. Well, there's a question here of um, uh, politics, I suppose, or trying to understand, um, you know, these issues in particular, from the virus to even our climate catastrophe, and understanding uh, that these are products of the particular system that we've been living in for. Uh, as many years as we have, uh, at least, let's say, in a mercantilist system since the late uh, 1500s, perhaps. But to imagine the industrial age we live in is spawning these these situations. Uh, but trying to address this at, at, at those roots rather than uh, to try to weather a pandemic and weather another pandemic, uh, to try to understand that we have to reorganize in a way that helps us both create different separatisms and bring ourselves together collectively to uh, ignore some of those individualisms. Exactly. That's why we have in the same time to think about the current moment, what we have to do, like washing our hands. Yes, we have to do that. Absolutely, yes. But we have also to project our spirit or our minds, our imagination in the future. That is to say, we have to think uh, about the way through which our governments in China, in France, in Germany, in the U.S., are going to deal with what is happening now. Because I don't know if you know that, but in Italy and in France, uh, in France since uh, yesterday, uh, when you go outside, because there is like a total quarantine situation, everybody is like compelled to stay uh, at home, if they have a home, because some people have no homes. But what does it mean to stay at home when you have no home? Think about that too. This is Interchange on WFHB. As part of Taking the Measure of COVID-19, or the novel coronavirus, we're talking with philosopher Frederick Nara about separatism. What does it mean to isolate ourselves in the face of illness and pandemic fears? And how can that separatism be used by those in power? But also, how can the governed make use of separatism to undermine that power? So nowadays in France, when you want to go outside, even if you want to go somewhere to buy some groceries, you need first to upload a document and you have to, uh, on internet, as a special governmental website, and you have to explain, you have to write your name on this uh, document, explaining who you are and the reasons for which you go outside. Because there will be some, you know, um, police um, officers um, and maybe the army, I guess, uh, checking uh, the reasons for which it's possible to find people outside in the streets. Okay, so that's a response. And we could think, oh, that's t- it makes sense. We have to protect the population, right? It seems like rational. Okay, okay. What would be the next step? We know, uh, you know, every historian is able to speak about that. We know that each time a government in history was able to produce a new biopolitical rule able to strengthen its capacity to uh, control the population, each time an invention, each time a new rule is produced, this rule will be kept. So let's think about that without paranoia. We have to think at the same time, as I said, 
the current moment, what, what we are experiencing, what we have to do to protect the persons we love, right? But we have also to think about the next step. What will be the next step? What will be the next? What will be the next governmental uh, 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 step? So it's like um, it, it, it's 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 not what I try to say. I don't say at all that governments are currently using these new rules in order to uh, strengthen the capacity to control the population for like. Uh, reasons that have nothing to do with the virus. I just try to say we have to be aware, we have to think, we have to be smart enough and to think what will be the next use of these new rules that are nowadays, uh, you know, emerging, like um, appearing in France and Italy. But it would be maybe the case in the US. I have no idea about that. Yeah. So we have to think a little bit about the future. Well, it seems clear that uh, this is the case with all. If we just see this as a, uh, even in the um, in the framework of terrorism, right? It, whenever we we cast our our fear net over ourselves, we are able to then, as governments anyway, to remove more of our ability to um, to think of ourselves in a in a free sense or a liberated sense. We have less and less right to move about. And if we understand that there will be another virus after this one, we can imagine how a government will feel that it's... Uh, it, we can imagine how governments will feel legitimate to produce a permanent state of exception, like rules able to protect population from uh, the next virus. Right. And I can imagine to be the case, like, you know, uh, the situation will not, you know, uh, last uh, for a couple of months or even six months. Maybe there is a new form of globalization uh, at play. Uh, uh, maybe the virus, this, coron this coronavirus, is going to reboot uh, globalization. Maybe not produce a, an deglobalization uh, as people as many people say because that's you know i would like to finish with uh, uh, a little bit of hope uh, so because we spoke about uh, you know this uh, possibility of a permanent state of exception uh, of how governments could use, could use these new rules in order to strengthen their capacity to control populations but okay what is happening nowadays is a strange thing because borders uh, are in fact closed, you know, like we could imagine that a nationalistic person would be very happy with, with what is happening nowadays, right? Because like uh, Germany and France and Italy were compelled to reinstantiate their borders, to close the national borders. Okay, but are people happy with that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that people are happy to be at home, you know, uh, and closed uh, in their home and compelled to face what they try to escape for uh, decades, that is to say their own psyche. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine, let's be like, let's produce some hope for one second, okay? Not too much hope because it could be a sort of dangerous intoxication. But let's imagine a possibility for, in fact, people after, you know, this terrible crisis, people asking for more sociality, more community, uh, something and the opposite of any sort of nationalistic um, enclosure. We could imagine that a population will ask for a new form of social contract, you know, a new way to imagine the relation between each others. So um, I am very pessimistic, but I can imagine also uh, 
uh, an interesting uh, a spring, an interesting spiritual spring, an interesting spring of bodies uh, after this crisis if we survive. That's our show. And we'll close with a final listen to Compassion, a catastrophic track from a late recording of John Coltrane. Thanks to Cass Botts, Forrest Gilmore, and Frederic Nera for joining us today to discuss local and international responses to COVID-19. We'll continue to take the measure of this pandemic on future programming. We'll have more information about the Indiana Recovery Alliance and the Shalom Community Center on our webpage, wfhb.org interchange. Thank you for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Mia Beach produced the conversations with Cass Botts and Forrest Gilmore. Kate Young is our executive producer. This is Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.